Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. The government's management of the economy has been disastrous. Conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking. The power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. largest economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years. This is Voices of Venezuela, a new mini-series produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela. We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the U.S. and international community can do to help the voices of Venezuela. Errol J. Boak is a deputy director and senior fellow with the Project on Prosperity and Development at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He studies forced displacement, migration, foreign assistance, and development economics, and has examined humanitarian refugee crises in different parts of the war, as well as on a global scale. He recently published a report entitled Confronting the Global Migration Crisis. Errol, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Venezuelans are fleeing at an alarming rate. Over 5 million people have left the country. That's an outstanding amount, about 16% of the Venezuelan population. The number is projected to reach up to 7.5 million by the end of 2020, surpassing the 6.7 million who have fled the Syrian crisis. Errol, I have a couple of questions for you, but let's start with how this Venezuelan refugee crisis compares globally to another similar crisis that you have seen and studied before? I think this is the quintessentially interesting question, to be honest, because the Venezuelan human mobility crisis, for lack of a better term, is massive. And it is on not only a global scale, but it rivals any other displacement crisis you can think of. The most common one that we think about is the Syrian crisis, and even that has similar numbers of Syrians that have been uh, displaced from Syria. And quite honestly, some of the effects on the surrounding region are not dissimilar from some of the effects being felt in Venezuela's neighborhood. So it's interesting because the amount of response and attention that the Venezuelan displacement crisis gets is disproportionately low based on what I quite frankly think it should be. And there's a whole host of reasons for that, but that's definitely where we find ourselves today. So that brings to the point of, of the term refugee status, right? At this point, Venezuelans are not recognized, at least legally from an international perspective, as refugees yet. Yeah. So what's the meaning of this term? And, and secondly, how important is applying to this term to Venezuelans in terms of increasing a global response to this crisis? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, it's essentially why are Venezuelans, why am I doing this verbal dance when I'm talking about what really should be Venezuelan refugees? So not to go too back into history, but in the wake of World War II, 
there was a convention in 1951 that essentially set up what we now know as the global architecture around refugees, around forcibly displaced people, and what types of protections the international community should be affording. That was amended in 1967, and then in 1984, something that's really relevant to the situation at hand happened. In Cartagena in 1984, the international community and most importantly, the several key Latin American countries, including Venezuela and right. including Colombia, including Brazil, came together in Cartagena, Colombia, mm-hmm. and expanded the definition that was created in 1951 and amended in 1967. So in the, in the 50s and 60s, it was only people that were forced from home due to conflict. And in 84, there was much more going on in in Latin America, and, and I'm sure your listeners can go and Google around what was happening in the 1980s in Latin America, but there was a lot going on that was not in the category of armed conflict. Right. And so they expanded the definition to include, and I quote, generalized violence, foreign aggression, internal conflicts, massive violation of human rights, or other disturbances to the public order. So fast forward to where we are now, and UNHCR, which is the the UN's refugee agency, has actually issued guidance as of 2018 saying, you know, in our opinion, in the UN refugee agency's opinion, Venezuelans, a lot of them are are qualifying at least under the 1984 Mm -hmm. definition. And quite frankly, a lot of them are probably qualifying under the narrower armed conflict definition. But the UNHCR doesn't have teeth in that way. Mm -hmm. They're kind of beholden, and this gets to your second question of why does it matter. UNHCR, as the UN's refugee agency, has a mandate to provide protection and support. They're a humanitarian first agency. Right. But they can only do as much as they're invited to do by nation states. And so where we find ourselves, where Venezuelans more specifically find themselves today in Latin America, is each country that is receiving Venezuelans has to make its own decision on whether or not they're calling those Venezuelans refugees. Mm -hmm. And to date, most of them have not chosen to call them refugees. And instead, they've kind of put together a hodgepodge of status. There's a work visa here. There's a temporary visa there. There's a, you know, all sorts of different efforts. That's a great point. Just a last question on this, because I I think it it does matter and it's important to to make sure that we and our audience understand. So will, will making Venezuela officially using the term refugees make their life easier whenever they go to Colombia, Brazil, or other countries in the region? Will that help them significantly, like, uh, on the ground? I think the simplest answer is yes. Mm -hmm. The more nuanced think tank answer is it's complicated. Mm -hmm. For the Venezuelans themselves, the support that HCR can provide is undoubtedly necessary. It's, It's really, really needed. You know, they're providing protection. Most of the people that are fleeing Venezuela, I haven't seen the formal numbers, but most of them, last time I looked, were women and children mm-hmm. that required humanitarian assistance. Yeah, And those that didn't need immediate life-saving assistance were in need of longer-term health care, schooling, and all sorts of other types of public good services, human rights, really, that UNHCR is well-positioned to provide. 
the reason that it's complicated is because one, it's not up to UNHCR. Mm-hmm. If invited by a country to screen and and see if people qualify, they will do that, but they haven't. And so the reason that they haven't is because for a person to be designated a refugee, that's essentially signaling to the country that that person's probably not going anywhere anytime soon. Yes. And I'm not excusing this, but if you're a local politician in rural Colombia or your local politician in rural Brazil or Ecuador or Peru, the quickest way to lose your next election is to say, oh, these Venezuelans are here for a really long time. That's right. And that's essentially what the refugee status signals. It signals that they're going to get protection, that they're going to be safe, and therefore they have less reason to go home. But I think what UNHCR is really, really concerned about, and I absolutely agree with them, is we have to make sure that people can stay legally where they are and that they're not being forced to return. So this document that was issued in in 2018 was very clear from the UNHCR saying it's really critical that whatever countries do, sure, we wish they would allow them to be called refugees. That makes everything sort of neat, clean, and easy, Mm -hmm. although... It's not even that easy because then you have an increased number of refugees that needs more funding and the UN refugee agency, like everybody, needs money and that would require more money. But let's say that that money existed and they could provide the support. It would still mean even if that refugee status wasn't available, you still need to make sure that people are not being forced to return home. Yeah. No, good point, Cyril. Thank you. Let's move on to the push factors. Why Venezuelans are fleeing their country? And as I mentioned before, I I was able to go to the border between Colombia and Venezuela, right, and talk directly to refugees. We talked to more than 50 refugees. Many of the reasons why they're fleeing their country is the lack of basic commodities like medicines, food, blackouts are going on in a national level. And they're also facing a lot of security challenges like collectivos, armed groups, Hyperinflation in Venezuela is also increasing. So there are many reasons why they're being forced to leave their country. And that's not surprising why we're seeing millions of Venezuelans leaving, right? And we have a couple of quotes from two refugees, from Joan and Grady. I came from Yaracuy two months ago because I have three kids. It's two boys and one girl to see what I could do for them, because really, in Venezuela, everything is horrible. There's nights that you go to sleep without eating dinner. And then when there's no breakfast or something, they cry, Mom, we're hungry, we're hungry. That was happening before I left. They were crying, and that was heart-wrenching for me. And so I decided to come here to see what I could do. But in all honesty, we haven't found anything, anything, anything. So you walk until you get as far as your feet can take you, I guess. And that's where you stay. You've had to sleep on the street and stuff. The man that we just heard from talks about walking for weeks just to get out of Venezuela. People are walking hundreds of miles to get to the border, and then once they are out of Venezuela, they often have to walk hundreds more to get to their final destination. So, Errol, I wanted to get back to you. And I remember you were just in Colombia earlier this year. And, and you know, you were able to also have a sense directly from Colombians on, on how the Venezuela refugee crisis is affecting Colombia. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about what are the specific hardships 
that Venezuelan refugees are facing when they leave their country, and especially those most vulnerable, right? Poor people, women, pregnant women, and children who are, you know, leaving their country on an ongoing basis. Absolutely. And I have to say, just listening to those quotes is is really moving and, and I think further connects what's happening to Venezuelans, to uh, displaced people around the world. Some of what I heard from them is, is what you hear from desperate people uh, in other parts of the world. The difference being uh, some of those people are at least refugees in official status and, and have support, whereas a lot of the Venezuelans getting to your question, nobody wakes up in Caracas in the morning and says, I'm going to be a refugee today. I'm going to take only what I can carry on my back and I'm going to walk, not take a colectivo. I'm going to walk to the border. Mm -hmm. I'm going to walk over the bridge and then I'm going to walk all the way across Colombia, which, oh, by the way, is topographically very, very diverse. There's some big mountains in Colombia. Mm -hmm. And so these people are walking women, children, pregnant women, they're walking thousands and thousands of miles, often through incredibly harsh conditions. And they're doing so because they feel like they have no other choice. I can't think of a better definition of a refugee. Is someone forced to leave home because they think that they have no other choice. And so in addition to harsh, harsh conditions, children are not in school. There's really lack of access to healthcare, which I'm sure you'll cover in a future episode of Voices of Venezuela. And the thing that is worrying me from my recent time in Colombia is that you mentioned the ELN, which is a, a lingering armed group in Colombia. There was a peace deal with the FARC in 2016. Correct. There are some FARC dissidentes that are still here and there, but really the main group that everybody's concerned about is this ELN. And what it's concerning to me because the leadership is all in Venezuela mm -hmm. and about half of their armed group, by some estimations, are in Colombia. And they're kind of going back and forth freely. Right. They're supporting the Maduro regime. The Maduro regime is providing sanctuary for them in Venezuela. And what they're doing is they're seeing vulnerable Venezuelans, especially young men, as ripe candidates for ELN recruitment. And so in addition to all of these difficult conditions that that the people themselves are dealing with, they're also having to be wary of forced conscription into groups like ELN. That is correct and very concerning for, for everybody in the region. As you mentioned, Colombia signed a very important peace agreement with the FARC and is having already challenges to implement this peace agreement, right? And the ELN is probably one of the most important factors of why this peace agreement is still as challenging as probably ever before, um, and, and the fact that Venezuelan refugees are being a target uh, in many ways, not only for a recruitment perspective, but also they're facing other challenges, right, to access to healthcare and education, and, and in an environment where many areas are, the, the, the presence of the Colombia state is still limited, right? Yeah. Well, there was a power vacuum in, in 2016 when the peace accord was signed with the FARC, the FARC largely demobilized. Again, there was some dissidents and there's some lingering challenges, but they largely put their guns down. And that created a power vacuum. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're not talking about Bogota. We're not talking about Medellin. We're talking about Cucuta. We're talking about places that are on or near the Venezuelan border, places that are way outside of Bogota. 
and it's in those places where there were power vacuums that were mm-hmm. previously being filled by the FARC. And I think the the Santos administration and now the Duque administration had the opportunity to fill those power vacuums. And for a whole host of reasons, some their own making, some not their own making, they had really a lot of challenges doing that. And so now you have ELN filling those power vacuums. You have, oh, by the way, Mexican drug cartels that have moved in into those power vacuums and are providing essentially services and governance and playing state-like roles in those areas. And so Oh, by the way, these are also the places where the Venezuelans are coming to. And so they're exacerbating their presence, I should say, not them. Their presence is exacerbating already big challenges in, in Colombia right now. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Let's talk now about how the region is impacted by this Venezuelan refugee crisis and what the international response should be coming forward, right? And and again, this is not a Venezuelan crisis. This is a regional crisis. Right now, there are over 1.7 million Venezuelans refugees in Colombia, more than 800,000 in Peru. Over 3 million others are spread across Ecuador, Chile, Spain, the U.S., and other countries. So the, the people who have left Venezuela are not just the most poor, the most vulnerable, but also highly educated people like Daybert, who had to abandon his 10-year career in law. There's also another issue, Errol, about xenophobia, right? The more, and I'm sure you have seen this issue popping up in other refugee crises in the war, but the more people stay in foreign countries, the more pushback they get from communities, right? The, the, the sooner the communities see that the refugees are there to stay longer, the more pushback they're going to get. And, and that's an, a phenomenon that we have seen in other countries. But let's hear from the Iber first. It's hard because I prepared myself in Venezuela. I'm an attorney in Venezuela. I have three years certified in political science at the Catholic University of Tachira. And I was a teacher at the National Experimental University of the Western Plains, Ezequiel Zamora, founded in Barinas. Well, I have a professional curriculum in Venezuela. I have nine, almost ten years of experience in law. And unfortunately, I had to abandon that because the situation in Venezuela was bad. It's not an easy situation for people who are professionals or technically trained. For anyone. Look, for anyone. Errol, back to you. I just wanted to ask you after hearing the Iber, how are neighboring countries responding to this crisis? How does the level of migration affect a, a country's development in the long term, specifically in Colombia, right? It's, it's a country that is getting the brunt of this crisis. And what can they do about this? All very, very important questions that unfortunately we're not going to solve in the next couple of minutes, but I think there's ways that your listeners can be thinking about this. So first of all, human mobility in the long term provides net economic benefit. So it's a nerdy way of saying essentially the Venezuelans, the longer they stay in places, they could actually have a positive economic impact over time. Uh, And there's Latin American cases of how this has played out, including Colombians in Venezuela that were displaced during the FARC wars Correct. and, and yes. the, the sort of Venezuelan economic boom that at least in part resulted from the Colombians. So that having been said, I think what you said earlier about the risk of xenophobia is very real. Um, and I don't want to diminish those feelings. It's not also a Latin America specific phenomenon. As you mentioned, this is a, unfortunately a very normal response, the othering 
the demonizing and the, and the xenophobic responses are, are sadly all too common, uh, including in our own country here in, in the United States. And so I, I think how countries in the region are responding differs greatly on local and national leadership, uh, on what some of the other challenges there are that are being experienced. I think I'm not a Brazil expert, but in Brazil, I think they're having some challenges with a, with a sort of a right-wing populist government, othering and, and demonizing Venezuelans in ways that are not, not particularly productive and give fodder to those that are blaming their own problems on these vulnerable Venezuelans that are coming. I want to talk a little bit more about Colombia. I was recently there, yeah. as you mentioned. And in Colombia, you know, this is an OECD country. Mm-hmm. This is a country that is part of the club of rich nations, essentially, was what the OECD is. But it's also the second most unequal country in the most unequal region in the world. Mm-hmm. And so the inequality, the economic inequality that you see in Colombia is staggering uh, from extreme, extreme poverty to wealth that is beyond imagination. And I think what is happening in Colombia is after the peace process, there are people that are realizing that the FARC wasn't the reason why they had all these problems. There was extreme economic inequality. There was corruption, bad governance. Well, Venezuelans themselves are not the ones that are adding to that problem. They are being forced from home in Venezuela by no choice of their own. They are coming to Colombia. Their presence is exacerbating some of these governance challenges. Like we said before, those challenges are much more acute outside of Bogota. And so you have kind of illicit economies driving these rural areas and the Venezuelans coming in, and, and so local people, local Colombians, who themselves may have been displaced in Venezuela and, and feel a kinmanship towards, towards Venezuela, are having to kind of open their doors and, and have um, a little bit more of, of a compassionate approach. And I think Colombia deserves a lot of credit. Yes. Both from their government and from the people that they have not defaulted. 1.7 million is no joke. That's a lot of people. Yes. And they could have just defaulted to the xenophobia. And I think to their credit, they have pushed that off as long as possible. There were local elections in late 2019 Mm -hmm. where there were some candidates that, you know, their platform was a little bit more of an othering xenophobic platform, anti-Venezuelans, that unfortunately did a little bit well. And so some of the people that I talked to down there were a little bit worried that this initial welcoming posture was changing. However, my conversations with the government did not signal to me that 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 was going to change from an official level anytime soon. I think the Colombian government has made a commitment. But I think that there's real risk of, of compassion fatigue, including with Venezuelans. So unless we come up with a durable solution to why people are being forced from home for the reasons that the people that you interviewed down on the border were citing, and until we have solutions to those, we can continue to put Band-Aids. We can continue to right. try to galvanize international responses and raise the type of capital, the money that's needed to respond to this. But without a solution to the root cause, we're going to be in perpetual humanitarian mode. That's totally right. Until we don't see a democratic 
free Venezuela, uh, this is only going to get worse, right? Um, just a couple of points I think is worth to mention. One is that many of the people that we interview on the border, they want to have access to the labor market. They want to have a work permit. That's all they are asking for. And many of these people have high skills, are educated, and they can actually contribute to the economy in Colombia, right? Um, but they're not able to because simply they don't have the paperwork. So that's one point I wanted to bring to your attention, El, because I know you have studied this issue in yeah. other areas. On the other issue that I also hear is that many Venezuelans want to go back to Venezuela once there is a transition to democracy in the country. I mean, again, many of the people that we interview are eager, eager to go back and not stay, and they don't see Colombia or any other country in the region as their permanent resident. So interestingly, those two things are related. A displaced person's ability to work is often predicated on some sort of sponsorship by some sort of company or entity. A lot of times, displaced people like Venezuelans are a little bit wary of that type of formalization. In extreme cases, giving up your passport if you have one. A lot of Venezuelans don't have passports. But they're essentially wanting to stay a little bit more informal. They want access to the labor market, but they want to stay a little bit more informal because if the Maduro regime falls and if a new democratic dawn emerges in, in Venezuela, they want to be ready to go back. I think the reality, the sad reality is that protracted crises like in Venezuela is the new normal. And so the longer that people stay, not just Venezuelans, but displaced people around the world, the longer they stay in displacement, the less likely it is that they are yeah. going to go home. Yeah. You talk to a displaced person, and this gets to your right to work point as well. If you talk to a refugee, Almost inevitably, the first thing that they will say is, I want to provide schooling for my children. I want to provide a future for my children, and I want to be able to provide that future for them. What you don't hear is, I want a handout. Can somebody else provide me humanitarian assistance? Obviously, they need that, and I think that's, you know, in a lot of cases, really critical that that's provided. But like nobody gets up in the morning and says, I want to be a refugee, no refugee wakes up in the morning and says, all I want in life is to get assistance. They say, I want to be able to work. I don't want a handout. I want to be able to work. I want access to the labor market, informal or formal. And I want the ability to return one day if, if ever that's possible. It sounds simple as we say it yeah. here on this podcast, but, but there's all sorts of local... And, and quite frankly, understandable reasons why, why that doesn't happen. Yeah, good points. Last question to wrap up. We mentioned that this is a crisis that is one of the biggest in the modern history of Latin America, right? This Venezuelan refugee crisis. However, Venezuela have received significantly less aid compared to other countries in other parts of the world. For example, since 2017, Syria and South Sudan has received 7.7 .7 billion and 4.3 billion respectively, while Venezuela has only received only 224 million. Why do you think this is happening? And I know we covered this issue at an earlier event earlier this year, but why there is such a significant humanitarian financial gap when you compare Venezuela to other similar countries in, in conflict like Syria and South Sudan? It's a great question that doesn't have a clean answer. 
I think you continuing, you, Moises Rendon, and the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS continuing to push this point is really critical. Uh, learning from you, I push this point in every conversation that I have with people about Venezuela. I think it's ridiculous. I also think that the the why it's happening piece probably has something to do with geography and proximity. It probably has something to do with, look, the response from the region hasn't been perfect, but it's also been fairly adequate in places like Colombia. You know, places like Barbados and, and Curaçao are having difficulties because now 20% of their population is displaced Venezuelans. But by and large, you're not seeing the type of 2015 Syrian refugee crisis into Europe sort of thing happening. And let's face it, a lot of the donor dollars in the world come from what's known as the global north. It comes from the United States and Canada. It comes from uh, Europe and Australia. And Venezuela is near to none of those. And perhaps in a different America, not the one we find ourselves in right now, there would be greater response. I think you hear a lot from Europeans that they want political solutions and that they're contributing. But also this is in the Western Hemisphere. And so maybe maybe right. the U.S. should step up to the plate. I don't see that necessarily happening in, in 2020. Maybe it'll happen later. But there is compassion and fatigue, not only in host communities, but amongst donors. Yeah, Like I said, these protracted crises are the new norm. And unless we get it at resolving some of the roots of these these problems, we're going to continue to have this. There's a finite pie of money, and there's more and longer lasting efforts to get at that pie. Errol, thank you so much for being our first guest of this mini-series Voices of Venezuela. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Trocapolis Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sandin for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela. Thank you.